everyone, and welcome to another edition of SFC Connects. We are so pleased today to have Neka McGregor, the co-founder and executive director of Women at the Center, um, joining us today, and she'll be speaking more about this. Thank you so much, Neka, for joining us. Thank you very, very much, Sampada, for inviting me. I'm very, very, very honored to be here. Oh, I'm so happy. Well, we'll just dive right into it. I'm really interested in hearing more about your story and uh, what brought you to Canada. So, you know, obviously we, um, Skills for Change, has a mission of serving immigrants and refugees, the immigrant experience and, and what brought you here and a little bit more about you. Right. Well, um, before I start, I'd like to, again, humbly acknowledge that I'm coming to you on this beautiful autumn afternoon on the territories belonging to the Haudenosaunee, the Mississauga, and the Anishinaabe. Very, very grateful to be here today. Um, my, <laughs> my journey to Canada was really, it, it was planned, but it wasn't planned. I, I, I was born in Nigeria. Right. And uh, when I was three, we moved from, there was a civil war in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So to um, my, my siblings and I went to join my parents we were studying in the UK. My dad was reading law. Um, went to join my parents in England. So I was raised in the UK. Mm -hmm. did my, all my education there. Right. And actually had two of my children in England. But um, my ex, my now ex-husband, um, had a brother in Canada. And mm. occasionally he'd come and visit his brother, and would bring back the most beautiful photographs of autumn. Mm. In, in the brother lived in Guelph, so you know there'd be these beautiful landscapes with. Oh yeah. I thought, yeah, this is gorgeous. This this land is absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. so the opportunity to move to Canada came. My ex-husband and I, and uh, our two children at the time, mm -hmm. five and six months, um, we moved here. Oh, that was yeah. 1992. It's been a while, and um, the journey was relatively. You know, innocuous. So we weren't, uh, we didn't experience, we're very fortunate not to have experienced the same type of uh, displacement that right. a lot of people, a lot of people go through. We came as professionals. Mm -hmm. We uh, were running a, a business, a company in, in, in England. And right. so came to Canada and started another company. Um, yeah, so it was not as sort of the, the uprooting and the turmoil wasn't mm -hmm. as bad, but it was bad. <laughs> Because all my family, everybody was yeah. in England, right? Mm -hmm. My my sisters, my father, who was my rock, um, my nieces, everybody was in England. And so coming to Canada as sort of the first generation without the family, of course, and we're very close, yeah. my siblings and I, that that was very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I, I assume that networks-wise, it's that's the challenge, right? When exactly. Exactly. To be integrated, be able to um, integrate yourself well into the, you know, economy, but you need your networks. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that's a great story. And, and, and to that point about your career, much of your career is around the entrepreneurship sector and mm -hmm. the career college and you own the management consulting practice, which is just such a like wide array of um, experience there. And um wealth of uh, knowledge around, um, you know, owning your own business. So how did that, um, you know, can you walk us through a little bit about that and then how that transitioned into found, uh, co-founding the Women at the Center? That's a great story. And, and, and to that point about your career, much of your career is around the entrepreneurship sector. 
mm-hmm. and the career college and you owned a management consulting practice which is just such a like wide array of um, experience there and um, wealth of uh, knowledge around um, you know owning your own business so how did that um, you know can you walk us through a little bit about that and then how that transitioned into found, uh, co-founding the women at the center um the my experience was yes I, I've always been a, a an entrepreneur an employer um, right from when I I finished qualified finished my degree mm-hmm. um, I went into business very very young I think I was 25 with my ex-husband at the time yeah and we started a company in, in the UK and his area was in in pharmaceuticals and so I, I sort of branched into it with him right and um, I've never worked for anybody in that sense and I, I don't plan on it and I, I guess I'm too old to start now but <laughs> the, the reality was the reality is that it's um you know life as an entrepreneur is very very challenging right because there's a lot of uncertainty it's not you, you are you are creating the the wealth and you're responsible not just for your own but for all your staff so mm-hmm. there's a lot of responsibility around it but how you move from um the company we founded in in the uk mm-hmm. to the company that was founded here um that was again it was a natural transition because that's what we knew that's what we were doing there was right. a need we identified a need and then went and filled it mm-hmm. my sort of trajectory into the the consulting actually came much later that that's mm-hmm. in the last i don't know three years okay women at the center um uh moved to non-profit that's been like 16 years on right. the journey. Okay. and that that journey started because i'm a survivor right mm-hmm. uh, intimate partner violence and I wanted to I was looking for particular services as I was you know trying to flee in the violence right and the the experience that I had navigating the various systems was not a positive one Mm. right and the way survivors were constantly sort of blamed for the violence that they'd experienced and the way the system sort of treats anybody who discloses that I'm a survivor as you're somehow broken and I, I didn't feel broken. I felt actually that I, the fact that I, I survived, right, and I'm navigating this means that I, I have spent, I have incredible time. Yeah. So I started looking at ways to use my lived experience mm-hmm. navigating the system. There's a way to bring about change, right, and to right. inform, educate. And when I was looking for other survivors who yeah. understood, there wasn't any formal sort of network, a formal organization. There were organizations in the violence against women sector who provided services to mm-hmm. survive. Again, kept, right. kept us as this adjunct, you know, broken, poor relative of, of, of the family, right. which never sat well with me. So mm-hmm. it was obvious. And I remember speaking to my dad um, at the time when I was thinking of starting the organization, and he said to me, it's waiting for you. Of course it has to be you. And I thought, okay, well, my dad said it has to be me. So I, I'm, it's gonna be me, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so that's that's how the, the organization started. And I, I was doing a lot of advocacy, right? right. And, and you know, speaking up, I was on television, I would yeah. be at conferences, conferences and, and, and such. And every time I'd speak, at the end of it, somebody would you know, get, get in touch and say, oh my God, I'm a survivor. I want to do this as well. So the idea started percolating, right? How do we 
how do we get together? Because I, I knew that our voices, our collective voices would be powerful. Right. So I did what I do. I started a, a nonprofit organization, We've been around for 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, and we have thousands of members from all over the world. Um, membership is free. But again, it's really a space for those women and trans identified survivors of violence to get together and figure out ways that we can uproot right. the, 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 the heart of why violence exists and what can we do? Because I, I know we have the power and that's what we've been doing. And then, and at the same time, so the, the journey, right? At the same time, I was also doing a lot of volunteer. Um, I sat on, I sit on lots of committees and boards mm -hmm. and I was, uh, for 11 years, I was on the board of governors, board of directors of the private school my son uh, used to go to, my son mm. went to then. And for six of those years, six of those 11 years, I was the chair of the board. Uh -huh. so again, I, I was honing my skills on yeah. um, leadership from a different angle, right? right. Leadership as an employer, but leadership as governance. And all of it sort of coalesced, right? So I... I, I retired from the board and I was looking for ways again to continue to use my skills and my expertise and I thought if not you <laughs> you can do this so I I started uh, consulting and the consultancy is called Necker and Co and again it's about a network of primarily uh, women identified consultants and we work in the area of um, equity diversity and inclusion and specifically as it relates to gender, um, race, and identity. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, a, it's a journey, and I'm still on the journey. Yeah, I'm still of course, journey, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, an amazing um, story. In regards to the women at the center, what do you feel, like, what were some of the initial challenges and opportunities? You talked a little bit about the opportunity of, you know, not kind of, you know, keeping survivors separate and seeing them as broken. Um, and really uh, driving uh, change from the policy and advocacy space. But um, also, how did you create that space, women survivors of intimate partner violence to come forward and want to connect and want to share their experiences and stories? I think all, all of it um, is really founded on the way I, I like to move through the world, right? I, I think we need to lead with compassion, even for those who have harmed um, and so when I speak, it's not from a place of, um, you know, bitterness or hatred at, at all. It's from a place of growth and how do we impact, how do we help people shift? And so I think that message resonates, mm -hmm. resonated and still resonates for a lot of survivors who are not looking for punishment, right, or penalty, mm -hmm. but they're right. looking for change in, in people's behaviors and attitudes. Mm -hmm. And so I found that uh, the way I, I approached the work mm -hmm. and the, my board, the board of directors who are all survivors, and mm -hmm. again, it's not just intimate partner violence. There are, there are mm -hmm. uh, survivors of human trafficking. There are survivors of sexual violence. And the violence is, what, what is common mm -hmm. is that the violence is male perpetrated. Right. So all of us. Mm -hmm. have experienced violence at the hands of some male male identified individual so it's gender that's why it's, it's the gendered component but yeah I, I think the message was um is still one of hope and not throwing people away 
and understanding that there are ways people learn violence, right? If you're not born with it, I believe that. People learn it and people can unlearn it. So what can we do from our position of power, having experienced it, what can we do to help with the unlearning? So I think that message resonated and that's what women, you know, they, they hear and they think, yeah, I can do that. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And um, uh, and then, you know, um, we know that, you know, just based on, you know, the work that we do in Skills for Change around the intersectionalities and challenges of women. Um, so in particular, you know, if you were to look at a Skills for Change client who's a newcomer woman, who's a survivor of uh, violence, um, they could be facing additional you know, challenges of isolation, being new to the country, lack of access to the job market, lack of access to networks, having to manage your fam familial obligations. How do, how do you address those individual needs knowing that there's not one way to, um, you know, to support a woman that they, the, you, it, the challenges are very unique to that individual. And, and you, you, just, you just nailed it, right? That it is around diversity of experiences and therefore diversity of, of um, interventions, but ways to address. And for us, um, talk about intersectionality. And again, Kimberly, Dr. Crenshaw, understanding that there is certain communities, certain identities that are disproportionately um, overly burdened by this. So when you look at, for example, black, indigenous, trans women, the, the burden that's put on them, mm -hmm. society treats them, requires particular um, types of interventions and attention. Mm -hmm. And so for us, as an organization that is by and for survivors, that's, that's our philosophy, that whatever intervention that has that is being developed has you have to have the community that's impacted at the table right, right. Have. otherwise you're going to have white women with all due respect to you know white women white women creating programs from a lens that they they don't they don't have the lived uh, experience of so for us we try very very hard to engage um survivors from all walks from across the spectrum to yeah. participate and to help develop programs because again I yes I'm an immigrant but I I'm like I said at the beginning I I didn't come as a refugee right and if, if we're talking about uh, um supports of refugee women yeah we need to different, vastly different you you have to right and you have to ask them you have yeah. to center their experiences and so for us we are I think I I look at us more as a, a connector mm -hmm. of, of network a network right. And then we connect and we identify challenges mm -hmm. and then bring women together to sort of put our brilliance together, our brilliant minds together and come up with really practical, tangible uh, support mechanisms. Right. And again, I, I, I'm not a fan of the cultural competency stuff, but it has to be relevant and it will only be relevant if it's informed by the community. Absolutely. If I answer that <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You answered it perfectly. <laughs> what are some of the myths about intimate partner violence that, and how can we combat that? What does it need to be done in the individual family, school, community, workplace, uh, you know, collectively to really address that? Mm, there's a lot. There's a lot that the individual can do. There's a lot the family can do. There's a lot schools can do. There's a lot society as a whole can do. A lot. Mm -hmm. um, but first of all is that 
not to blame the victim, right? right. That's the first thing, right? You don't blame women for the violence that is um, being brought against them. Mm-hmm. No woman, I have yet to meet a survivor who said, yes, I, I signed up for this. Nobody signed up for it, right? Yeah. And so it, it's a really um, counterintuitive way to address intimate partner violence by shaming the victim. Mm-hmm. What shaming does is it, it keeps her silent, right? And when she's silent, she's stuck in, in that situation with that uh, perpetrator. So that's number one. You, you need to shift the attention to the individuals who are responsible for the right. harm right. and still provide services for, the, for those who have been harmed. Mm-hmm. The shifting that I'm talking about is how we raise our boys and our girls, right? I have, a, I have, a, I have three kids. Mm-hmm. I talk about them all the time because they're just spectacular. Um, I have two daughters and a son. Yeah. And my son is right in the middle. And if you, if you asked him, Alexander did chores the same way as his sisters did. Mm-hmm. Alexander yeah. was responsible. You know, there, were, there, were, there was no special treatment because, you know, he, he had testosterone. There, there wasn't any. Right, right. And he was raised to be respectful of human beings. Mm-hmm. just like my daughters were. He was raised yeah. to be you know, kind and compassionate, just like his daughters were. And so the, the likelihood, just, just got married in July, the oh, likelihood, likelihood of my son ever yeah. um, uh, abusing his, his wife, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. Yeah, right. Unimaginable. So to me, it's, it's really centered around how we raise our boys and also how we raise our girls. Right. Because my mm-hmm. daughters are, you know, they're powerhouses in, in their own right. But that doesn't mean that they won't meet some screwed up Absolutely. fellow who will try, try it on with them. Yeah. That's the second part is, is how we raise. And then the third part is really, you know, for everybody to understand that there are, there are um, critical supports mm-hmm. that you yourself yeah. as an individual and whether you're you're um, looking at it in the workplace, maybe a colleague, right. experiencing it, yeah. or it's you know in, in place of worship, somebody from your community, yeah. But even you know in in your your the townhouse complex where you live, somebody might be experiencing it. Mm-hmm. For every individual to know that they they have the capacity to uh, safely intervene, right, right, and and that safe intervention is around accountability right if you know somebody who is um abusing their partner mm-hmm. could be your brother could be your you know your best friend there are ways for you to hold that person accountable mm-hmm. yeah. don't don't lock it off you don't say it's boys being boys you must hold them accountable and it's through accountability that people change their attitudes we mm-hmm. i can tell you a whole slew of of uh, challenges around the criminal legal systems intervention. We right. do, we've been conducting a series of what we call court watches, where we go and monitor the specialized domestic violence courts in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And so predominantly the accused, right? The, the, um, the perpetrators are men, overwhelmingly the victims of the violence are women. And, but when you, you sit in a court and you listen mm-hmm. to the, there's still victim blaming that happens in the courts and even when the men do, when they do admit that they did it, the consequences to them are inconsequential. That's yeah. 
frame right. a phrase that we 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 coined about inconsequential consequences. It doesn't make any difference, right? You yes. get um, a, a, there's a peace bond. What does that do? It tells him that there, there's nothing that's going to happen to me if I beat yeah. her, break her, break her arm, you know, kick, kick her in the head, strangle right. her. Yeah. Courts don't won't take it seriously. So mm -hmm. there has to be some measures of accountability that's in place both on the individual level as well as systemic level. Absolutely. And uh, just on a personal note, I have two boys now and they're, you know, age five and, and six months. And I, I little. They're very little. <laughs> but, you know, I, it, that crosses my mind on a daily basis is how I'm, you know, responsible for how these individuals are raised as boys and, and will be grown into men and to, you know, have that so that I can be rest assured when they're older, just as you said, that this would never happen, yeah. never happen. And how I you know, raise them and my husband raised them. It, it's really, it is up to the individual. And I've seen obviously culturally and from previous generations, even in, in my you know culture, that how girls and boys have been treated differently. Girls mm -hmm. have, you know, do the dishes and the cooking and the guys get a, absolved of all those responsibilities right. that in and of itself creates that you know difference of you know i'm a man i'm a woman these are my rules and, exactly um so it's really important but of course on the system level is so important and um a community as well just to um you know ensure that you have that strength and that voice to really stand up when you are seeing something that's happening exactly bystanders bystanders yeah. need to be empowered Completely. And um, how how uh, does the unique experience of uh, survivors and these uh, challenge, intersectional challenges, how do they form policy? Well, we, uh, <laughs> we, we that's a huge question. That's a huge <laughs> um, because the policymakers are, again, human beings, right? We're all mm -hmm. human beings doing this work. It's not AI yet. Um, and so you have opportunities to influence other human beings right and the the real challenge that we've experienced is how do you get into those spaces where policies are being being created being made? right um it took a, a long minute it took a long time uh before we were recognized as sort of essential to the work mm -hmm. of policy education reform etc but now, when I say it took a long time, it actually didn't take as long as I it, it could have done. Right. Because I'd started advoca um, advocacy before I started the organization. And my advocacy was centered around the importance of centering survivors mm -hmm. in, in everything. You can't right. do work without survivors. You can't talk about you know, systems change. Yeah without survivors. It's like, I give the example of pharmaceuticals again. Mm -hmm. When you have these drug manufacturers, they test it on sick people. Right. right. And then they get the input from the people who have consumed the, the, the drugs. Exactly. And that's how you, you know whether it works or not. Works or not, yeah. And so for us, you need to, you need to speak to, mm -hmm. and it's not the casual, occasional, well, let's get a, a survey. You right. need to have survivors centered as lead, mm -hmm. right? Leading the, the initiatives, centered as um, collaborative in the initiative, 
And oftentimes you need to, you know, just get out of the way, right? Because survivors are coming and we know what, what works. So it, it took a minute mm-hmm. uh, for both on a, on a provincial as well as a federal level for the recognition of the really pivotal, critical role that survivors play. But now any work that's being done without survivors being centered, right. even, even um, agencies in the violence against women sector who mm-hmm. were very, very reluctant in the beginning, mm-hmm. right? And now, you know, beginning to see the value, right? And right. how really nuanced and mm-hmm. comprehensive the, the policies that are created with survivors are compared to policies that are created for survivors. Right, right. It's, it's the proof is in the pudding, as they say. You, you see yeah. the difference and you see the impact that it makes and people think, well, of course it makes sense. Absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, given that this uh, uh, global organization, I'm always really curious um, about where Canada sits on uh, certain, you know, in, in the global realm of things in terms of our policy initiatives and how, um, you know, programs are addressed, supports are, are addressed and, and uh, the types of supports. So are there countries that you find that are, you know, have more comprehensive supports that we can learn from? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. For example, um, a, a number of years ago, the UN sort of told every country that you need to have a national action plan. You need to, mm-hmm. you need to develop a national action plan to address um, gender-based violence. Right. Canada, a country like Australia, they're 10 years ahead. ahead. They've, they've developed their, comp- their stuff is fantastic, absolutely comprehensive. Canada, we're 10 years behind because mm-hmm. we're just now, just now beginning the journey to create one. And again, wow. you know, credit to the, the current federal government Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau and the the financial commitment that the government has made, right? They believe that gender-based violence is something that can be prevented. And they are putting their money, putting our money, mm-hmm. right? Our tax dollars mm-hmm. behind that. But um, yeah, it's taken 10 years. We just started, I'm, I'm, I'm also actually on the federal council that's developing this national action plan, Canadian national action plan. But to your question, you know, Australia is my go-to, right? Because they are doing some really promising, best practice, it's not even promising, they're doing some really best mm. practices, um, not just in their legislation, right? The way that they're ch- changing the law, but in the, the supports that they're for survivors, as right. well as, critically the supports and interventions that they're doing with men who use violence to harm. Right. So they're, 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 they're really, really good. The UK, mm-hmm. yeah, they, I, you know what, they're good. They're good. I, I, I will say there are some challenges just like in Canada, right. but again, they have really powerful um, activists, uh-huh. advocates who are holding gov- their governments accountable, which is what we're, we are doing as well. Our government. So yeah, there, there, there's a couple. Um, so if I had to pick one, it would be it would be Australia. Yeah, and, and the Nordic countries, right? Mm. Obviously, right. That's great. Well, I mean, you know, and and speaking of the UN, like you know, uh, with this global pandemic, obviously globally, um, we've heard a lot about um, the violence against women has intensified. 
And so what, you know, you were mentioning that the Canadian government really has um, brought a lot of attention and, uh, you know, uh, uh, policy and programming um, that is going to, that is providing additional um, supports, but what, so what are they doing? Just expand a little bit about what have they done that is addressing this current situation? And is there, you know, more that, can, obviously there's always more that can be done, but what, what can be done in addition? Because as we know, this is not going to go away anytime soon. Women are disproportionately, you know, um, affected in so many different ways, but um, it is going to continue. And, you know, uh, the more that we're in, you know, having to go back into lockdown, it, what a concern that is about the happening with women who are being abused and um, do not have the access to resources. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, this, I, when the pandemic started in March, mm -hmm. I, I was interviewed by, I think it was CBC or one of the, the newspapers, and I was explaining to people that this is going to be really horrible. This pandemic is going to have a really devastating impact on survivors because it's, it is one, an, an old global pandemic being gender-based intimate partner violence that's meeting a new global pandemic of, right. of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And that meeting happens, the, the, the people who are going to suffer the most are going to be women and children, as if things weren't already bad, but it's going to be significantly worse. And that's what the numbers are about, right? Mm -hmm. right. Isolation with an abuser the isolation is an abuse, right? Because you, you can't go to work where for a lot of women exactly. work was a respite. Right. The children all going to school was a respite. Yeah. But now right. And right. so to answer the question about what the federal government has been doing, a lot. Mm -hmm. They, they um, put aside a pot of money, don't quote me, millions and millions, um, at the very beginning for shelters. Right knowing that, that shelters were going to be inundated, overrun, not have, not just the, uh, the space, but fundamental, found, um, basic personal protective equipment. So there was um, uh, some money put aside for shelters. Mm -hmm. They also uh, set aside money for organizations, sort of ancillary organizations on, mm -hmm. on the, like us. Right. So we, we received funding, uh, COVID crisis funding, mm -hmm. We saw, even though we're not direct service, we're not mm -hmm. frontline right. service, we were getting like a 400 increase fold in the numbers of women who were calling us for safety planning, for example. Mm -hmm. And I have a very small team and all of us were on the calls, right? Because right. you can't, when a woman is saying I'm in crisis, I yeah. need to, I can't say, I'm sorry. No, exactly. My, my <laughs> I work nine to five and I can't help you. Okay. And so my staff were, myself and my staff were man in person in the phones and were experiencing burnout. So the government recognized that and provided again, uh, funding for organizations like mine to increase our capacity to support. Mm -hmm. And then they also expanded, um, provided funding uh, for, uh, again, organizations who work in in the violence against women and sort of ancillary um, sectors to help them again reach out to communities. 
So I am very, very grateful that the federal government has responded in this way, right? Because it, 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 had they not put that amount of money to this portfolio, it, the devastation, the impact yeah. would have been yeah. far, far worse. So and not, to your point, of course, there's, there's always more. There's always right. more that can be done, but it's not just about money, right? Yeah. And I say this all the time, it's not just about money. People need to feel empowered and yeah. you know, learn, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of resources out there that will help you understand what intimate partner violence is, gender-based violence is, educate right. yourself, right? Yeah. Be, do the heavy lifting, get informed, and then figure out ways that you can support, you know, your local shelter by yourself donating, right? And or donating to organizations like, like mine that are doing frontline work now, simply because COVID yeah. is the new, it's a new. Yeah, exactly. And I think even on a granular level, just checking in on people, right? <laughs> Absolutely. That, that I, I, I said it, and I say it all the time, that um, this is not the time to be deterred Right. And, and if you phone, you know, phone your sister, phone your cousin, phone your best friend, phone your colleague and let that person know that you are thinking of them. And let if they are in a in a, an abusive situation in the house, the abuser will know that people have not forgotten her. Right. Right. So so I, it's, it's a message that as an organization, we've, we've been trying to spread that mm -hmm. everybody needs to be checking in on their their relatives a heck of a lot more frequently than you did in the past because these are very very difficult difficult times crisis. yeah mm -hmm. and just uh, shifting gears just a little bit and you know you and i and uh, you know our, our uh, colleagues have talked about you know community partnership around um you know skills for change in particular that can support um you know women survivors uh to be able to enter or re-enter the job market uh, with an understanding that additional supports might be you know, required to address the trauma that they have faced or ensuring safe space with it, work environments and whatnot. So um, what, you know, how, how can that, you know, how do you see that working and how can we as like Skills for Change, you know, make ensure the right support so that we can, you know, um, not like you said, kind of push that group aside as, you know, the, the, like you said, the kind of um, black sheep relative or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and so we, we, we've been having some really wonderful conversations with your team, my team and I, and talking about opportunities for partnerships, right? Yeah. And understanding that skills for change, you, your focus is very, very wide. I didn't know just how expansive the program, I didn't know, I was in awe. I was in shock and awe at how expansive your, your programs are. But the difference is that we have, we come from a particular, uh, we have particular expertise mm -hmm. that your team may um, not necessarily have. And so we're exactly. talking about, we're talking about ways that we can provide training to yeah. your team so that you, you're better prepared to support right. survivors who, who come in. And also recognizing that you know, survivors look like this, like there, there isn't, there isn't a, a sort of a, a one, yeah. one size. Survivors come in all sizes and colors and shapes and you know, education backgrounds, etc. And so women might be coming in mm -hmm. and don't think that they are survivors, but they jolly well are. Yep. So it's really around helping you 
um, helping the folks at you, you folks at Skills for Change to language, mm -hmm. right? create space so that anybody who does walk in feels that this is a space that 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 uh, recognize they see me, right? Right. Even though even though I'm not walking with bruises, but they see me. Right. Yeah. Um, so there there are lots and lots of opportunities for partnerships. One of the things that we were also talking at our last conversation with your team was we're creating we have chapters of women at the mm -hmm. center right. you know we're going global right all, all across the the country now mm -hmm. and we're, we're working with community organizations to help them, for you to help us facilitate in the creation of chapters if there is a particular group you know immigrant women newcomer women yeah. who want to create a, um, a chapter of women at the center that is by and for newcomer survivors mm -hmm. We're here for that. We yeah. are completely here for that. And and your you your team can support those women as we support you and those women as well. So mm -hmm. there's plenty of opportunities for collaboration, for you know, um, program development, co-program development together, training, lots and lots of and we 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 love you guys. We we just think our we spirit. <laughs> It's been it's been an amazing, you know, we kind of got connected just very recently and it's just been already so amazing to be able to collaborate and be able to support in, in the capacity that we can. But exactly what you said is understanding that um, you know, we need to understand those individual um, needs and, and like we do with any of our clients. Right. There's there's always um, that um, needing to understand what those the specific supports are and then. Right you know, because I, I do employer engagement, I'm always really curious to understand, you know, how, how we can uh, advocate for those particular individuals without, of course, disclosing, you know, experiences, but to ensure that it, what, like, what is the role of employers and how do we facilitate that to ensure employers meet those needs so that, that, you know, there is that safe space and women right. who are survivors of violence can feel that the safe work environment and be able right. to thrive if they are, re especially if they're re-entering the, the market, right? Right, right. Well, there are, there are legislative pieces that address, um, you know, gender, domestic violence in the workplace. So under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, for example, right? And so employers have supervised, they have a responsibility to um, protect right, their, 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 their workers who may disclose. So there's, there's legislative aspect. What we found is that there is, yes, you can have the legislation, mm. but how you translate it into a change of attitude? attitude right? Yes, absolutely. How right. do you get the employer to understand what you know, intimate partner violence is? And how do you get them, how do you get the employer to feel empowered to intervene, right? right. So last year, actually, we've been having that conversation for a little, a little while. Mm -hmm. And last year, we decided that we needed to sort of expand our training opportunities. And we created an absolutely fantastic, if I say so myself, mm -hmm. fantastic <laughs> certification program called yeah. Empath. Um, employer, employers, prevention of abuse, uh, certification and training. And that, that program is offered to employers where we go in, we, you know, do everything from the um, violence against women into a partner violence 101 to a really more nuanced understanding of what you 
as an individual, you as supervisors, you as a corporation can do to actually make your, your space safe for your staff who may be experiencing it and how to make it safe and accountable mm -hmm. to your staff who may be perpetrating it. Right. So we have a fantastic program that we launched and um, yeah, so we're promoting it. I'm promoting it here. <laughs> That's great. I'm promoting it here. <laughs> but yeah, it's about people, um, employers knowing that they have, they have power, right? Oh, they can, absolutely. they can, they can save lives. And when you think about the numbers of women who were murdered yes. at their workplace, yes, yeah, right? things that employers can do to to, to keep their staff yeah. safe and to hold those who commit, who use violence, to keep them accountable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well. I feel like we've just cracked the surface. We could go on for hours <laughs> and I would really love to have you back again um, for some other areas, but um, it's been a fabulous um, five, five minutes of chatting with you. Thank you. the feeling is mutual, my friend. Thanks. Um, it's been uh, really great to get to know more about you and, and the work that you, amazing, amazing work you uh, do to hear more about about that um in the future but thank you so much i hope that um you know uh this experience of uh working from home and everything has been has been a good one for you i don't know what you've been doing to your mental health and wellness uh, while you're you know uh impacting um you know in such a positive way but uh, that uh, that's been going really well is there anything that you can share that you've been doing yeah, um, I, I talk about my kids, right? Um, my my self-care is always immersing myself in my children, always. My eldest um, is now 13 hours away. She's She lives in Hong Kong. Oh, wow. Um, but you might think she lives down, downtown Toronto for the, the <laughs> times I'm constantly harassing her. Uh, we, speak, we speak all the time. Um, so that's my, I call them my three wishes. That's my first wish, Annie. Uh, my son is in, uh, in Markham. Right. And, uh, I, you know, he comes over every, every weekend and I cook. He's, we're both vegan. So he comes over and, and we cook vegan food and, you know, catch, catch up. Delicious young man. And then my baby, he's not a baby. Uh, <laughs> my 23-year-old is, um, she's still living at home. Uh -huh. She's supposed to. She she's supposed to be in New York now at uh, Parsons, um, doing her masters in architecture. Oh no! Yeah, but well, I'm I'm happy that she's You're in Toronto. Happy, yeah. <laughs> I'm, happy, I'm happy, and and because of all the stuff the uncertainty that's happening, yeah, dates and you know their COVID numbers. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know it's difficult, you know, doing a, a technical arts based oh. degree, a masters oh. online. Online, yeah. But but I'm happy that she's home because every time I'm done work, my last call, I you know she and I we we cook together. Yeah. She fills me in on you know who said what during her calls. Right. I fill her in on what I did. I have a glass of Chardonnay. Yeah. And then rinse and repeat the the following day. We do it all over again. So yeah. That that's that's my self care. I I I just immerse myself in in my babies because they 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 nourish me. Yeah, they're just they're spectacular. Oh, that's amazing! Such a benefit of having family, you know, close by and not close by, but that just the technology being able to 
message and text whenever. I love that, that you share the cooking, even with me and my, my joy of my day is when my son runs in from school and I can just go with him and, you know, <laughs> just enjoy, enjoy, enjoy that, that time. And just, it brings a huge smile to my face. So, love it. Uh, but um, love thank it. you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, we're going to just have, um, you know, so much to absorb from this conversation. So I really thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sampada. Really, really wish you and the team continued success and happiness and health. And stay safe. Thank Thanks again for having me. Thank you.